Hello, everybody. This is Ab Abercrombie with the Biblical Counseling Institute. I want to welcome you to our weekly podcast that we call Ask for Biblical Counseling. And it is our effort each week to take important issues related to uh, our emotional, behavioral, relational lives, and, of course, our spiritual lives, and look at them in the context of God's Word. I really do believe, and I think the Bible supports this uh, idea, that Scripture is fully sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. And so as believers, when we're confronted with difficult situations in our day-to-day lives, our answer will lie in Scripture. And the more familiar we become with God's Word, and the more it uh, becomes embedded upon our hearts and minds, the better we, equipped we are uh, when these circumstances arise that require answers and action. Okay? And so it, by, by being in Scripture and being in prayer, being in close proximity to Christ, we remain in a state of spiritual preparedness so that when matters arise, we already have uh, information uh, within ourselves provided through the Word and the working of the Holy Spirit that help us respond rightly and obediently to difficult situations of suffering. So again, I want to thank uh, our supporting church, Faith Family Fellowship, a Southern Baptist church in Spanish Fort, Alabama, and especially Pastor Joel Faircloth and his elders and staff for supporting our ministry each week. And... uh, just very grateful for their time support. Tonight, I want to talk about uh, the second part of our presentation last week, which was on the importance of repentance in our daily lives. And one of the things I suggested to you last week is that every believer must, I think, must learn to live within a climate of repentance. It should be a part of how we live, how we examine ourselves daily, how the Word, God's Word, holds up a mirror to us. That when we read God's Word, it's showing us not only uh, our outward conduct, but it's showing us the nature of our internal heart. And so by being in God's Word, I think it naturally produces a repentant response. Uh, The more we read God's Word, the more humbled we become. Uh, The more we read his word, the greater and greater is our understanding of Christ. He becomes much larger. The majesty and the wonder of God grows incredibly. And our view of self begins to shrink. We begin to be diminished. As uh, John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. We quote that often, but we still sometimes are pumping ourselves full of our own authority and our own wisdom and not really submitting ourselves to the instruction of the Word, the leading of the Holy Spirit, to direct us through difficult waters. And they do come, challenges do come. Tribulation and trial is a great part of this life. And many of you have suffered greatly at times physically, relationally, spiritually. But I want to remind you that that while all situations can have elements of of, uh, 
of, of situational impact, medical impact, uh, relational impact. And while these things are important factors, we have to remember that all things have a spiritual component. There's no way, especially for a believer, to escape that fact. And if we tend to deal with our life issues only by finding a behavioral remedy or changing a relationship, uh, doing something to relieve the pain of the moment, well, we must understand that that's a very temporal approach to life, and it is in many ways an unbiblical approach. It's not wrong to seek relief from pain, but we have to realize that a lot of times the seeking of relief will actually become sinful over time because very often we're servicing our need for, for just temporal uh, satisfaction, uh, some uh, temporal remedy, rather than really going to the God's word, which brings about transformative change. In other words, what we want to acquire as Christians is a um, transformed heart, a transformed identity, a transformed allegiance to Christ and submission to his authority and his word, not just in the moment, but as a matter of life and daily living. And so repentance becomes all important. And I did acknowledge last week that there are a lot of factors in this world that influence how we respond emotionally and behaviorally and so forth. But more often than I think many of us would like to admit, sin is a component, if not the major component, uh, that determines how and why we are suffering. And to ignore that is very short-sighted. And so even when there are situations happening in our lives that seem beyond our control. Maybe when someone else's sin is affecting us, and it's not a matter of of some repetitive willful sin in our own lives, we still must go to God's Word. We must look to God's Word for instruction, both when we are sinning and when we are responding to a fallen, corrupt, and uh, depraved world. People do sin against us. Uh, The world comes against us in a spiritual um, assault. We are, uh, as Christians, always in spiritual battle. We're not always under the direct attack of demonic agents. But there always is a current that pushes against us. The current of the world pushes against the flow and walk of our Christian lives. And we must be careful to examine how we respond, how we find answers to God's Word. And so a lot of things that we call psychological illness or psychological impairment is really a spiritual issue that has taken root in the heart, has defiled the heart and mind in such a manner that we're not responding biblically. In other words, we're off track, we're, we're out of sync, with God's word, and therefore we're going to have a more distant relationship with Christ. And I would suggest to you that our proximity to Christ, our nearness to the Savior, determines everything about how we live as Christians. You know, in John 15, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him 
bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the strongest statement uh, ever made by Jesus about the importance of being tied to, connected, dependent upon Christ as we move forward. There is no other way to productively conduct a Christian life than to be embedded in that vibe. And so uh, sin, as we talked about last week, divides us from the vine. Now, I will remind you, and of course you know already, that God does not forsake his elect. He does not uh, forsake his children. Once we are saved and firmly in the grip of Christ, that cannot be undone. But sin, even in the Christian life, creates division with we're not lost, our, our, our circumstance of salvation is not altered, but we can be divided from the fullness and the uh, provision of Christ by our rebellious and hardened conduct. Remember from Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that he does not hear, but your iniquity have created a separation between you and your God, and your sins have caused him to turn his face away so that he does not hear. Well, like I said last week, that to me is the definition of mental or emotional suffering. What a desperate place to be, uh, to be divided from Christ. But the great thing for Christians, for believers, is that repentance restores immediately that abiding relationship. And it restores immediately the peace and contentment that is so much a part of that relationship. And so if we fail to live in that repentant context, then we're going to struggle and suffer and pull against and even strive against the Lord Jesus. And in that circumstance, we will be troubled, anxious, depressed, all the things that we uh, deal with on a day-to-day basis. Our relationships, our marriages will be impacted by that struggle. And so we have to seek to find harmony with God's word and obedience to the Lord's teaching. Uh, and in my view, in my view of scripture, it will bring about transformative impact upon how we deal with our emotions and conduct on a day-to-day basis. So that we become free of the struggles that have plagued us sometimes for many years, behavioral sins and heart conditions that have become uh, just a great repetitive and debilitating force in our lives. So we talked last week about a lot of biblical uh, points that are made about repentance and what it is. and We distinguish the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Remember it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So remember, when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about just being sorrowful or sad about the condition of our lives that sin has brought about. In other words, sometimes people are sorrowful because they've been exposed or caught. 
Sometimes they're sorrowful because the consequences, the earthly consequences of sin are not to their liking. But godly sorrow is that deep and abiding awareness that I am an offense before holiness. And as a Christian, I'm an offense before my Savior, the one who died on my behalf. He, who in, in substitutionary atonement, went to the cross for me. And my sins were laid upon him, and he suffered the wrath of God on my behalf. When we're aware that our lying, our deception, our, our, uh, our immorality, our idolatry, whatever the matter of our heart may be, when we become aware that we are again placing our Savior back upon the cross uh, by sinning again in the, very, for the, in the very same way that we have sinned in the past, the, the same sins that placed our Savior on the cross. It begins to modify our repentance. It begins to make it uh, more deeply impactful. And uh, that's what true godly sorrow is really about. Now, you know that repentance is a primary theme throughout Scripture, that John the Baptist, when he came to prepare the way for the Messiah, his primary and certainly his first sermon from Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, it says that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I had hand, it was right next to you, it was close to you. And John also called for there to be evidence of true repentance in one's individual life. In other words, he wants he spoke of us walking out our repentance, not just saying the words, not just saying a prayer only, but there would be a continual evidence of that repentance working its way through our life and transforming, changing us into uh, something that is permanently different. Um, John the Baptist said in Luke 3, 8, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Well, all he's really saying there is don't depend upon uh, anything that you define as salvific. Uh, now, we are children of Abraham because we've been grafted into the truth. We've been grafted in as believers who come to Christ by faith and by grace. And so we are grafted into this tree and we are Abraham's children indeed, the Bible says. But we must not take that for granted. We must uh, show that the impact of repentance in our life is actually changing our conduct and our manner of life, and that we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus taught his first sermon as an adult when he stepped into a, an active role of ministry. 
was the same as John. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 7. And Jesus taught frequently on this issue, as he did in the parable of the shepherd who left the 99 sheep in order to rescue the one that was lost. Luke 15, 7, uh, Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus, of course, is not saying that there truly are righteous people who have no need of repentance. This really is an expression of his view of man's heart and attitude. In other words, I can have the attitude of righteousness, self-righteousness, and believe that there is uh, no need for repentance. But Jesus is saying that there's great joy in heaven when a sinner recognizes his sin, is exposed by God's word, held up as a mirror that reflects our innermost being. And when we awaken to our sinfulness and repent, it is a joyful thing in heaven. Repentance, whether it is repentance for the first time, as in coming unto salvation, repentance is a necessary component of salvation, or is it an ongoing sanctifying repentance in the life of a believer, who, which, which is repentance unto restoration? Because anything that becomes rooted and willful and repetitive in our lives has to be uprooted and cast out and cleansed by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the Word going forward in our lives. And so uh, repentance is necessary coming unto salvation. It is necessary in, in our ongoing sanctification. And for that one who repents, there's great rejoicing. Finally, repentance was the primary instruction Jesus gave when he was seen walking the, the, the Emmaus Road after his death and resurrection. He was going down this road with some disciples who did not recognize him at first. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So with a great focus of the Lord himself, to the focus of Paul, again, I'll recite 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 10, where Paul said that, uh, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We've discussed that in some detail. Peter preached at Pentecost, a uh, great gospel of repentance. He said in uh, Acts 2, 38, Repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter also, in his first epistle, wrote of God's desire for repentance. In 2 Peter 3, 9, 
It is said that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is a great joy of the Lord when we see our fallen nature. And, and as we grow as Christians, I think we become even more sensitive to sin. We have a greater disdain for sin. And I want to come to be like-minded with Christ. I want to view sin with a great disdain and hatred. It is unacceptable. It is unholy. It has no place in my life. Now, of course, as one who is being sanctified and grown toward the perfection that we will have one day in heaven, we will sin. And that's why a climate of repentance and an awareness of sin is so critical, because we have to be engaging in this self-examination daily. We don't, do we? I mean, I would have to confess that some days I can be hardened and some days I can ignore the instruction of the word. I might even read it and still not be impacted by it. Uh, I can become stubborn and hard-hearted. But a climate of repentance, it means that I'm in the, the, the practice of daily disciplines that holds up that biblical mirror and challenges me until it breaks through that stony heart. It gives me a heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel. And so if I'm not doing that, though, and I'm not going before God's word, I can become uh, more and more convinced that my position is right. Maybe I'm anger, angry. Maybe I've become embittered. Maybe I've come to think that this person or that situation is causing me all of my ills. You know what? Maybe you know, people can be disappointing and situations can be hard. But the real problem has to do with my internal heart and how am I dealing with those matters? You know, we are defiled by nature as sinners. And what happens in situations and in dealing with people is that these situations and people expose our hearts. They don't really put anger and bitterness in our hearts. They expose what already exists. In Mark 7, Jesus taught a lot about the heart. And um, in Mark 7 and verse 15, he says, There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So what proceeds out of my heart defiles me, not what I take in. No particular beverage, no wrong food, uh, nothing outside of me, no circumstance, no person, uh, no activity of any kind can defile my heart, but it does expose the defilement that already exists in my heart. Um, in verse 21, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. So we have a great accountability for what proceeds from our hearts. And we can no longer say, well, 
he or she made me act this way or or he or she caused me to come under this um, great weight of emotional uh, pain. Certainly people hurt us and affect us, but the defilement is internal. You know, mental illness, as the world calls it, is not because you have some emotion. Emotions are not sinful. It's not sinful to feel angry or hurt or even anxious or fearful on occasion. They, they kind of alert us, in fact, to the reality that something is amiss, something is wrong within myself and within my life. Um, so emotions are not sinful, but when they become deep-rooted and they become embedded and they take control of how I live and there is no repentance, then they become sinful. The more our hearts harden, the more sinful we become, the more uh, resistant we are to God's word and to obedience and these kinds of things. But the emotion itself is not sinful, but the way we harbor it, the way we feed and nourish it, the way we blame and, and focus externally rather than deal internally with the repentance that is called for to be free of that circumstance. So how do we repent? Yeah, I've convinced you that the Bible requires it, encourages it, teaches us the importance of it. Uh, maybe I've even convinced you that our emotional states and our relationships largely depend upon our repentant lifestyle. Well, the thing about repentance is that you can't really do it. The Harris spent two meetings telling you that you must repent, and now I'm saying you can't really do it. But the good news is that repentance is a gift of God. Just as you could not save yourself, yet you are saved. You cannot repent, yet God will bring about repentance. It is a gift of God. A great example is uh, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. Uh, the Lord first starts talking about the bondservant of the Lord. What does a servant of the Lord do, and how do we help other people? But I want you to see how this passage ends when it speaks about repentance. In verse 24, uh, Paul wrote, he said, The bondservant, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Now, this is a statement that in ministering one to another in the church, we bear an obligation to go to and help people. We're not to quarrel with them. We're to be kind. We have, should have a capacity to teach them. We have to have patience. And we must correct those who are in opposition. We don't like to wade into those waters too much, but we're called to intervene and help people who are in sin. Why? The next is, is very important. Uh, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. So God imposes repentance. That sounds like a negative term, but praise God that he imposes it, or I would never repent. 
in my flesh only, forgive me. I'm not that sorry. Neither are you. Left to our own fleshly desires, our fleshly justifications, our self-righteousness, we're not that repentful. But when God imposes truth, when he imposes his presence, when he stirs us with conviction of the Holy Spirit, when you read God's word and it hits you like a mat truck, this is God imposing himself upon you. And as painful as it may be momentarily, God is granting you repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. That is a beautiful thing. Difficult at the time, but very beautiful in its completed work. That God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. Don't you love that? They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I just love that phrase that he it brings us to our senses. We escape the snare. And a lot of times when we are suffering with unrepented sin, we're sort of, we sort of lose our senses. We don't think real rationally. We can become obsessed and bothered continually by this root of resentment or bitterness or fear or whatever lies in the heart. And without repentance, it never finds freedom. It never finds resolution. But when we come to our senses and we recognize the truth and repentance takes full expression under God's direction, it is a joyful and wonderful thing. In uh, one of my first books, Wonderful Counselor, which I wrote with Dr. Carrie Skinner, who was my ministry partner at the time, we wrote about the importance of repentance. And he, in a separate book, wrote specifically about the joy of repentance. And we don't often think of repentance as a joyful thing, but it is joyful in its completed work. At the time God's word is confronting us and stirring our hearts, it is uh, difficult. Like it says in Hebrews about God's discipline. In verse 11, uh, chapter 12, 11, it says that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But for those who have been trained by it, it produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it is sorrowful in the beginning, but in the end it produces, through the training of repentance, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a glorious thing that is. And so there is joy because it reestablishes our connectedness, our proximity to Christ. It makes certain that our abiding in the vine is again secure. And the labors of all of uh, our personal efforts to strive and overcome and deal with situations is lifted from us by the grace and power of Christ. Now, in my book with Carrie Skinner, uh, and also in his later book, The Joy of Repentance, we wrote about five scriptural elements that seem to be a part of true repentance. This is in no way a step-by-step -step guideline. Because if God grants repentance, you can't plan how you're going to repent. 
So I'm not saying do these uh, following things and you will have repented. It is not a uh, structured process to follow, and it's not something you can control. But these are things that Dr. Skinner and I observed that seem to be universally present when repentance comes. And the first, there is a, the first is this. There is a deep and abiding awareness of our wrongness. That may seem elemental to you, but it's hard for the human heart to say, I'm wrong. God, I'm wrong. I see that I'm wrong. Very often we want to justify and build our case uh, to God. We want to present evidence of our goodness to God. But you know, Romans 3 even with believers, Romans 3 tells us about our core foundation, our core sinful nature that will challenge us until we go home to be with the Lord. Now, we're not hopeless and we are not um, held captive by any means um, by our sin nature. Because as believers, we are now flesh and spirit. We're no longer flesh only. Uh, And our potential and our capacity is greatly changed because we have the word, the capacity now as a believer to understand the word, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, and the working of the spirit, the convicting of the spirit, the wisdom of the spirit working in us from day to day. So while our hearts are yet sinful, we now have a newfound capacity to uh, gain victory over these matters that trouble us so. But you only have to read Romans 1 and Romans 3, and of course there are many other places, to understand what our core nature is. And so we have to remember that we can still be very, very wrong, even as believers. Romans 3 says this, beginning in verse uh, 10, there is none righteous, not even one. (laughs) Kind of strips us of any argument that we're right. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Now, we're not cursed by this condition any longer. Christ took our curse to the cross. Cursed is everyone, the Bible says, who hangs on a tree. And he lifted that curse from us by his substitutionary atonement at Calvary. But we will strive in ongoing sanctification through God's aid to overcome this course in nature. We won't have victory until perfection in heaven. But we also cannot take for granted our salvation and just say, well, I'm going to sin until I go home. That's not an adequate response. We have to, with God's help, go to battle against this core sinful nature, acknowledge our wrongness, and acknowledge the fact that even though you may have been a believer for many years and walked faithfully with Christ, there's always uh, an element of that old nature that can still rear its head 
and create controversy in your heart and trouble in your life. So the first scriptural element is that deep awareness that I am wrong. I have wrongness before holiness. Um, Colossians 3 and 25, it says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong, which he has done, and without partiality. Now, we don't receive the consequence of hell as believers, but we can receive the consequence of God's discipline. In fact, it says in Hebrews 12 that if we are without God's discipline, we are illegitimate. It means that we don't belong to him. So the, the consequences of our wrongness will be the hand of God intervening in our lives so that we come to our senses. He grants repentance. The second element that we see in Scripture throughout concerning repentance is a deep and abiding sorrow. God, I am sorry. It's easy to say, but are you convicted to the to the point that your heart cries out with aching sorrow. You know, I used to go to a really small uh, country Baptist church years ago, and we'd meet every Wednesday night for prayer meeting, and some of the older gentlemen in that church would, would uh, pray, you know, for people in the church. They'd pray for folks to get well sickness to be turned back, different things. And when it got to personal prayer, they would say something like, and, and God, if I have sinned, please forgive me. Amen. Well, that's, I kind of call that wholesale prayer. It's kind of like saying, Lord, I have a, an 18-wheeler truck full of sin. I don't want to open it up. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm just going to back it up to the loading dock. Please just forgive me for the whole load. So I don't have to think about it. And I can meet the standard of repentance. But true godly sorrow means that I back up that truck to the loading dock and I open the doors and I take it out box by box. I open it. I take out each item, and I put a price on it. That's retail prayer. And what is that price? What is the price for each of those sins boxed in my 18-wheeler? It was the death of my Savior. It was the love of Christ that took him to the cross on my behalf. So godly sorrow is not, hey, if I've sinned, please forgive me. God, I've, I'm so angry. I'm angry without cause, Lord. I'm bitter. I have hatred for my brother. I've contended with my husband. I was hurtful to my wife. I lost my temper with my daughter. Lord, I lied to my employer. And if we're in the Word and we're reading about all of these matters of holiness and we're reading about the character of God, which is so pure and clean and perfect, 
these impediments of the heart are going to come to the surface. They're going to be drawn to the surface by the word and the working of the spirit. So when I cry out, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to be aware with much more accuracy and much more emotion. I'm going to be aware of what my wrongness really is. James wrote in James 4, 9 and 10, he said, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So repentance will lay us low. It awakens us to our great sin, our sorrow. Now, when James writes this, he's not talking about being miserable and mourn as a continuous state. But it's a reference to repentance and to the knowledge that in my current condition, I'm prideful and self-righteous and I'm directing my own course. He says, recognize how wrong you are in this matter and be humbled. Be humbled, small, infinitesimal compared to Christ. And at the right time, God will pick you up. He will lift you up. He will exalt you. Now, the third uh, scriptural element that we see universally in scripture is a cry for forgiveness. Again, we say sometimes very superficially, God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. Sometimes I may see it, say it 20, 30 times a day. But has my awareness of wrong, has my deep and abiding sorrow caused me to cry out with a helpless plea, God forgive me? To God forgive me means that I know that I am helpless to do anything about this matter of my heart, and I need, Lord, for you to forgive what I could not change. Please forgive me. In Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 7, Paul wrote that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. It says in Isaiah 30 that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to be compassionate to you. Why is he longing? Why is he waiting? Well, the context of Isaiah 30 suggests that he's waiting because we're yet sinful and we've not repented. It also says in Isaiah 30 that in repentance and rest you will be saved, that you are unwilling. So when we know our wrongness, when there's true godly sorrow, there will be an utterance, a cry, for forgiveness that comes from a very different place. It's not by rote memory. It's not just something that I've learned to say as a routine practice, but it is something in this moment of spiritual awareness is bursting forth from my heart. God, forgive me.
The next thing that we saw in scripture that I think is often overlooked as an element of repentance is the need for cleansing. God cleanse me. You know that it says in 1 John 9, 1, we quote it very often, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we forget about what that cleansing means. You know, the scouring of the Lord is complete, powerful. Uh, his grace makes us clean by the imputation of his righteousness. He credits us with his own righteousness that will carry us into heaven. That cleansing goes beyond forgiveness, and it goes toward sanctification. It goes toward ridding ourselves in a permanent way of this deep sinful condition that continues to uh, complicate and uh, undo our lives. Uh, King David wrote in his Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51, he cried out to God and he said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Not according to my worthiness, but according to your loving kindness, God, be gracious to me. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Very, very critical. And you know that cleansing, although we are maybe are forgiven, that cleansing sometimes takes a longer time. And it's the washing of that word in our life and pulling those sinful impediments up from our heart and expelling them, being done with them, defeating them once and for all. Don't ever think that certain sin elements of your life cannot be done away with. Yes, we will be sinners to some degree until we are with Christ. But the idea that I'll never defeat my sin of pornography or my sin of gluttony or drunkenness or my uh, angry outbursts or, or lying or whatever the issue may be, it's just not true. We can, through the forgiveness and the cleansing and sanctification of Christ and the empowerment of his word and the working of his spirit that enables us to do things that we cannot do in the flesh, we can overcome, put away with, put to death many sins that plague us in a repetitive way. So don't fall into that delusion that well, I'm just I'm just flesh, I'm gonna sin till I go home to Jesus. Well, there's a very small element of truth in that statement, but the reality is that God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And if we're not burdened by our continuous sin, as you see with the apostles, they hated their sins. Paul, in particular, wanted to be done with his sin. We're probably not making progress unless that abiding desire continues. God, I am wrong. I am sorry, true godly sorrow. 
the, the true outpouring and pleading for forgiveness, the request to be cleansed and sanctified. And finally, God provides empowerment. One of the important elements of repentance is that God empowers. And we have to pray, I think. It's important to pray for help. I, I sometimes find myself praying for forgiveness, but also feeling that that's incomplete. Because I know that while I'm asking for forgiveness, I have not yet overcome this struggle. It's not defeated. And I have to also cry out to God to give me a capacity and empowerment. Lord, forgive me, yes, but also change me. God, give me a greater capacity in your spirit and according to your word to overcome this battle. Paul wrote in Romans 15, 13, he said, Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we are connected to Christ, when we are under his yoke, we are dependent upon his vine and we are feeding properly in the word and the spirit of Christ, there's a newfound capacity and empowerment that is not available in the other place. It is unlike anything the world can provide as a technique or remedy for suffering. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, God said to him that my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, this goes right in line with all that we've been teaching. We're going to close here shortly, so bear with me just a minute. My power is perfected in weakness. God's power is perfected in our humility, our awareness of wrongness, the abiding godly sorrow, the outpouring, the cry for forgiveness, and the begging for cleansing that lays us low. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. It lays us low. It shrinks our sense of self and pride. It begins to exalt Christ. So the weaker we are, the more his strength is perfected in us. We come to boast about our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell. I want to brag about Christ working in me because surely I have nothing to bring to the game of my own. These are just a few points. There's so much that could be taught about repentance. I want to recommend to you a, a book um, by Richard Owen Roberts. It's a fairly old book now. 
probably 20, 30 years old, just entitled Repentance. It's a great book um, about all the teachings in Scripture that pertain to repentance, both as a matter of salvation and as a matter of transformation, sanctification going forward in the Christian life. So I hope this is helpful to you. I hope it at least begins to help you think about the connectedness between your spiritual life, sins that exist in your heart that become a defilement to your life and that undermine your integrity, undermine your peace, undermine your connectedness and relationships with other people. And begin to repent of those things. And I think you will see a great power to change many of the things that we refer to as psychological or psychiatric. Um, please feel free to contact me if you have questions or if I can be of some additional help to you. We'd be glad to talk with you. And once again, thank you for being with us and thank you to Faith Family for providing this time. Let's pray together and we'll close. Father, I just thank you, God, for the the truth that you provide through your word, Lord, and the, the sense of your presence that we gain through the indwelling spirit. And God, on this matter of repent, repentance, I pray that my teaching has been correct and that you will utilize it, Lord, to help all of us examine ourselves, test ourselves. And uh, Lord, to use only your word as our measurement our evaluator of our true spiritual condition. Let us not rest in our own wisdom, Lord, but to turn increasingly to your truth and your power to help us, God, to overcome our sin problems that create many, many other functional problems in our lives. Lord, help us, we pray. We are hopeless but for you. And we thank you, Lord, for your great and marvelous grace that you provide in great abundance. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again, and I will see you next week. God bless you.